Father, there's no greater subject in all the world than to talk of you. Lord, it's far more important than talking about ourselves and our needs and our wants and our wishes, but to focus in on the one who made us, the one who has always been. Lord, in some senses, you are mysterious to us because you're so different from us. And we long to, to know you better, Lord. We long to, to have a greater understanding and communion with you. And so we pray, Lord, that as we open up the word of God and we, and we study throughout the year 2021, the attributes of God, that we would draw close to you. And that you'd expand our understanding and horizons of our, the great God who made us and saved us. Help us today, Lord, to understand your character, your immutable character. In Jesus' name, amen. It's tweaking, tweaking. Yeah. Tripping. So the year 2021 is the year that we are going to explore what the scriptures teach about God. We've already seen that God is self-existent. And what that means is that God is the uncaused cause of everything that is. He has no cause himself, but he is the cause of everything. And so we have seen that he's always been. He never came into existence. He has always simply been. It's his nature to exist. And so he has always existed. And because he is self-existent he's also eternal and self-sufficient he has need of nothing outside of himself we also have been studying god's nature and we saw that he's a triune being meaning he is three in one he's three persons in one being so that's the understand the biblical understanding of the, the doctrine of the trinity it's not that there are three beings no there's one being the divine being deity there's one being but there's three persons within that one being god has eternally existed in three distinct persons of the father the son and the holy spirit each of those three persons is fully god but yet there is only one god so that's what the bible teaches about the the very core essence of god he's a triune being but this morning we're going to go further and we're going to turn our attention to another one of god's incommunicable attributes and that's his immutability. Now, that word sounds strange, but if you break it down, it's not so strange. Because we're, we're familiar with um, a mutation, right? In fact, because of COVID, we learned that COVID-19 has been mutating. There's various strains of it now. And when we talk about a mutation, we're simply talking about a change. Something has experienced a, chain in, a change in the structure of its genes. So... At its base level, a mutation is simply a change in something. And when we talk about the immutability of God, all we're saying is that God doesn't change. God always stays the same. Mm -hmm. So what we mean is that God does not grow or evolve or improve, but neither does he regress or deteriorate or diminish. He's not advancing and he's not regressing He's staying the same, that he's always been, and he will remain this way forever. In fact, God can no more change than he can cease to be. It's God's nature to be, and it's God's nature to be who he is, and that is his essential 
nature, that, that can't change. Now think about it like this. When something changes, it either gets better or worse. Isn't that right? If I change, I either get better or worse in some respect. So if God changed, he would have to change for the better or he'd have to change for the worse. But Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 48, that therefore you are to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, so if God is perfect, he can't change for the better because he's already perfect. He can't get better. And if he changed for the worse, that would mean that he's no longer perfect if he got any worse than perfect. So that's why God can't change. He can't get better. He can't get worse. He's always the same. Now, when you think about everything else in the world and in the universe, you realize that God is the only one or the only thing that doesn't change at all. The heavens change. Second uh, Peter chapter three, verse 10 says, there's coming a day in which the heavens are gonna pass away with a roar and the elements are going to be destroyed with intense heat. So the heavens are gonna change. Uh, the earth changes. When we have an earthquake, the earth splits apart, bridges fall, <laughs> all kinds of crazy things happen or tornadoes or hurricanes or tsunamis. They bring changes to the earth. Plants and animals change too. Plants uh, germinate, they grow, and eventually they die. Even these great trees that live 2000 years eventually will die. And animals experience the same thing. They get sick, they die, and then people change. We age, don't we? When we age, we, we gain or we lose weight. Usually we gain weight. We acquire wrinkles, we lose hair, uh, we lose our ability to think as clearly as we did when we were younger. Our moods fluctuate, our attitudes fluctuate, even our zeal for Christ can go up and down depending on the day. So we change, we're changeable beings. And then the last one is, I, I, I was considering what are the angels. Even the angels, at least some of the angels have changed. Uh, I'm not sure about the angels who never fell, but I do know that the angels that did fall underwent a great change. Second Peter 2, 4 says, God didn't spare the angels when they sinned. So there was a period of time when the angels were obeying God, and then there was a time in which they sinned and disobeyed God, and things changed. So the only one, the only thing that we know anything about in this universe that never changes is God himself. So we want to examine God's immutability this morning. And uh, we want to do it in three areas. First of all, the immutability of God's word, the immutability of God's person, and then the immutability of God's purposes. And we'll take most of our time with that last one because it's going to require the most time to understand it. So the immutability of God in his word, in his person, and in his purposes. First of all, in his word. Does the Bible actually teach that God is unchanging? That's the question that we need to answer. I've told you that I believe God doesn't change, but is there any scripture that actually tells us that? Well, there is. We're going to look at um, four passages just to give us a base this morning. The first one is Psalm 102. Verse 25 to 27. This is what it says. Of old, 
you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands even they will perish but you endure and all of them will wear out like a garment like clothing you will change them and they will be changed but you are the same and your years will not come to an end mm -hmm. so this passage is really clear unlike the heavens and unlike the earth that change and pass away god is always the same he doesn't change and his years never come to an end one day the heavens and the earth will pass away with a roar but god will still exist god existed before there was this universe god will exist after it's been concluded another passage malachi 3 verse 6 this is what god says for i the lord do not change now there we have it right yeah super clear i the lord do not change therefore you O sons of jacob are not consumed now how does the one relate to the other why does the fact that god doesn't change mean that the sons of jacob are not consumed well i believe this is what god is getting at in this passage god made promises to the sons of jacob to the children of israel he made a promise in Genesis 15, verse five to Abraham. And he told Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the heaven, that he couldn't even count them all. And so he had made this promise to Abraham. However, the sons of Israel had been unfaithful to God, especially when it came to the matter of idolatry. And so what, if God were only going to respond to their idolatry, he might determine just to wipe them off the face of the earth, just destroy them and start over. But he says, no, because I don't change, you are not consumed. Because I made a promise to your forefather Abraham, and because I don't change once I make a promise, I'm gonna keep that promise. And Abraham's descendants will be like the stars of the heavens, I will not destroy them. And then there's another text, Hebrews 13, verse 8. This one's speaking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So Jesus is God. Jesus never changes. What Jesus was yesterday, he is still today, and he will be forever. His attributes are not undergoing a metamorphosis. He's not getting better or worse. He's constant and unchanging. And then our last text is James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, when I read it from the New American Standard Version, it's not completely clear to me what he's trying to get at at the end of that sentence, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So I looked it up in various other translations, and the New International Version is even more clear. This is how it renders it. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So we all are experienced with shadows. If you're standing in one spot, you see your shadow. If you come back three hours later, your shadow is going to change. It'll be either longer or shorter. 
it, it fluctuates depending on the body of, of uh, light, the sun, in the sky. And he's, what James is telling us is God is not like that. God doesn't vary. God doesn't change like shifting shadows change, but he's entirely constant. So this is the testament, testimony of scripture, Old and New Testaments. But exactly what about God does not change? We've seen the Bible tell us that God doesn't change. What about God doesn't change? Well, I want to highlight two things. First of all, God's person doesn't change. What I mean by that is God's attributes. That which makes God God doesn't change. Was God mighty in the past? Well, then he's still mighty now and he will be forever. Was he wise in the past? Then he's wise now. Was he loving in the past? He's still loving today. All of the attributes that make God God in the past are still the same attributes today and will be forever. So let me mention a few. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. God says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. So God's love for Israel was an everlasting love. It's the opposite of a fluctuating love, a love that comes and goes. You know, it's not the four-leaf clover, he loves me, he loves me not. <laughs> It's he loves me and he always loves me and he has loved me from eternity and he'll love me to eternity. Another text that would teach the same thing is Psalm 100 verse 5. It says there, the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. So God's loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness is everlasting. It's to every generation. There'll never come a generation on the face of the earth that will experience unfaithfulness from God because it's God's nature to be faithful. So God's love is everlasting. His faithfulness is eternal. They're fixed. They're constant. They're immutable. The very same God who created the angels, the very same God who spoke the universe into existence, is the exact same God that we deal with and commune with today. And 10 billion years into the future, that will be the exact same God that we will know and worship. Whatever God was before the creation of the universe, he's still today and will be for all eternity. So God is immutable in his person, but he's also immutable in his purposes. And this is where we're going to take more time. It's going to take more time to really delve into this idea. What does the Bible say about the purposes of God? We're going to look at eight or nine different texts. We're not going to linger over these for a long period of time, but we're going to read them and just take them and, and take them in and keep going and just accumulate a theology about the purpose of God. The first text is Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So what did we learn about the purpose of God? It can't be thwarted. 
In other words, it cannot fall to the ground. Nobody can stop God's purposes from coming to pass. And then there's Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. Here God is speaking. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose, there's our word, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now notice several things from this text in Isaiah. The certainty of God's purpose taking place. Number one, notice how God puts this. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In other words, nothing is uncertain about the purpose of God. Notice also that God's purpose relates to, to the future because he says, I declare the end from the beginning. And I declare from ancient times things which have not been done. So God is the only person who can predict with 100% accuracy what's going to take place in the future. Now, why is God able to do that? From this text, I would tell you he can do that because the future is based on his eternal purposes. Mm -hmm. He declares the end from the beginning, saying, my purpose will be established. So the end is his purpose. And because God's purpose can't be thwarted, and because he will establish his purpose and accomplish all his good pleasure, he will bring it to pass. God knows the future because God has planned the future. Okay, that brings us to Lamentations 2, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Now, this passage is speaking about the Babylonian invasion of Judah in the Old Testament. When the Babylonians invaded Judah, they destroyed the temple. <clears throat> they took the children of Israel as slaves and they deported them out of the land of Israel. <clears throat> but notice here that God's purpose from this passage is connected to his word. He says, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word. So the word of God is directly connected to the purpose of God. And this word is something that he commanded from days of old. And notice here that the purpose of God includes even sending an, a Gentile enemy army into the land of Israel to destroy their temple and take them slaves and deport them off into Babylon. You think that can't be the purpose of God. I thought only good things happen to God's people. Well, all things happen to be part of God's purposes. All things that take place. Okay, well, let's go to the New Testament now and see what it tells us about the purpose of God. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, we get to eavesdrop on a prayer meeting of the early church. 
And that's interesting to hear how the early church prayed. And here we have it, Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So God's purpose is linked to God's predestination. You see that? When Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel crucified Jesus, they were only doing whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. So the purpose of God is linked with God's predestined plans. Now, flip over a few pages to the book of Romans, chapter 8, and we'll look at a passage there. Starting in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Well, to whom? To those who love God. Who are they? They are those who are called according to his purpose. There's our word, God's purpose. What did we learn about God's purpose? God's purpose includes those that he is going to call. Certain people are called, but they're called according to this purpose of God. And then verse 29 tells us who those people are. They're the ones that God foreknew. What did he foreknew them for? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. So God's purpose includes calling certain people, they're the ones that love God, those that are called. And then those that are called, he also, his purpose includes uh, molding them and shaping them into the very image of his son. And then in verse 30, we find out that this purpose of God includes five things. It includes, well, one of them comes from verse 29. The purpose of God includes foreknowing these people, predestining these people, calling these people, justifying these people, and glorifying these people. So God's purpose is not something that we should wonder if it's going to take place or not. It's absolutely sure that it will take place. Once God has established his purpose, he doesn't change it, he doesn't alter it. It's set in stone forever. Nothing can change that purpose. Okay, turn a page or two over to Romans 9. And look at verse 10 to 13. Paul writes there, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, the twins were Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, okay, now we... There's the word that we're learning about. God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the younger, or excuse me, the older will serve the younger. So Esau was born first. He would be the older. He's going to serve Jacob, who was the younger. 
Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So in this passage, God's purpose is related to his choice of Jacob over Esau. We know that because he says God's purpose is according to his choice. And the choice he's talking about there is that the younger is going to rule over the older. Jacob's going to rule over Esau. So God's purpose is related to his choice, his selection. And then we can take a look at Ephesians 1.11, which is the verse we meditated on to start our service today, but it's good to read it one more time. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God's purpose, again, is related to God's predestination. And this predestined purpose works all things. Everything that takes place in this universe is being worked according to God's purpose, and it's after the counsel of his sovereign will. Okay, let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 9. 2 Timothy 1, 9. There it says, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So our calling and our salvation in verse 9 was not an accident. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't dumb luck. You didn't just get lucky that you got saved. God saved you and called you according to his purpose. And that purpose in verse 9 is said to have been granted to us from all eternity. The Greek says before times eternal. So we're talking about before time began, before God created this universe, he already had a plan in motion in his mind of what he was going to do when he created this universe. And he thought about you and me. And he thought about us being called and being saved and being brought into his kingdom. So God's purpose is related to his sovereign eternal choice of certain ones to be called and saved. And then our last text is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Hebrews 6, verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show, show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. We could stop right there because I don't even need to ver read verse 18. Notice it says the unchangeableness of his purpose. There it is. Once God has established a purpose, he doesn't change it. It is fixed for time and for eternity. Nothing can stop it from coming to pass. Nothing can change it so that it doesn't come to pass. So what have we learned from all these texts about the purpose of God in Scripture? His purpose can't be thwarted. It's the reason God can predict the future with 100% accuracy. It's connected with God's word, which he commanded from days of old and always comes to pass. It is connected with his predestination. It's connected with his sovereign choice. It includes him working all things according 
to the counsel of his will, it has been set from all eternity and it is unchangeable. Now that's what the Bible says about the purpose of God. God's purpose is not fickle, it's not vacillating, and it's not capricious. Once he purposes something, you can count on it. You can bank on it. Now that's why in the year 1646, a group of theologians, back in those days, they didn't call them theologians, they called them divines. But a, a group of English and Scottish divines got together in a synod, which is a gathering, a convention of these theologians, and they drew up what has been called the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms. And I wanted to read you a question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The reason they came up with these catechisms is because this was a teaching device that parents would use with their children. They would have the children memorize these questions and answers so that they could be grounded in theology from very early years on up. And so here's one of the questions. What are the decrees of God? Now think of a five or six year old Puritan little kid <laughs> and he's memorizing this. What are the decrees of God? Here's the answer. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass i'm going to read it one more time the decrees of god are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass now let me ask you do you believe that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yeah. You say, Brian, are you saying that God causes everything that happens to come to pass? No, I'm not. I'm not saying God causes it because God does not cause us to sin. If God forced people against their will to sin, then it would be very difficult to understand how he could be just in punishing them for the sin he forced mm -hmm. them to commit. And the Bible tells us in James chapter one, verse 13, that he doesn't tempt anyone. So no, I don't believe that God causes everything that happens in this universe, but he does permit it. Either he causes it to happen or he permits it to happen. And for God to foreordain all things, is not to say God causes all things, but it is to say that God wills all things. For God to foreordain all things is to simply say that God willed that they would be. This may get a little deep here, so put on your thinking caps, okay? <laughs> um, God is both omnipotent and omniscient. He's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. Now, almost everyone that I know anything of, every person who claims to be a Christian believes that God is omnipotent and omniscient. If you believe that God is omnipotent and omniscient you must believe that he has foreordained everything that comes to pass and the reason is because if god is omniscient he knows everything that's going to happen and if he's omnipotent he could stop it from happening if he wanted to but because it comes to pass it means that god didn't stop it from happening which must mean that he willed it to come to pass so that would include everything that would include all the sins ever been committed on planet Earth or by the angels that fell. It would it includes the sins that you and I have committed. It includes the horrific 
crimes against humanity that people like rapes and murders. It would include the Holocaust. God could have stopped all those things. If you believe in an omnipotent God, you have to believe God could have said, no, that's not the way it's going to come down. I'm putting an end to that. It's not going to happen. But God didn't do that. He allowed it to go to go on. So in that sense, it was foreordained. He knew it was going to happen. And he said, yes, this is the way it's going to go. I'm allowing that to come into pass. Now, let me ask you a few questions and you tell me, did God cause this or did God permit this? The flood in Noah's day, did God cause that flood or did God permit the flood? Debbie says he caused it. Let's see if she's right. <laughs> Genesis 6, 17, what does it say? God says, behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth. God caused it. God takes responsibility for destroying the world and all human life except for eight souls. God did that. He didn't permit it. He did it. Okay, what about Judas's betrayal of Christ? Did God cause that or permit it? He permitted it. He permitted it. Now, why do you say that? Because he didn't cause Judas to sin. Okay, that's a good answer. And I would just add to that, uh, John 13, 2 says, The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the sign, son of mm -hmm. Simon, to betray him. So God didn't put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. The devil did. But God could have stopped the devil if he wanted to, right? Don't we believe that God is more powerful than the devil? Absolutely. So, but God had a purpose in allowing Judas to go ahead with the betrayal of Jesus Christ. It suited God's purpose and God's plan for the devil to do that. And so God permitted it to take place. Okay, let me ask you another one. If you've been born again, and I assume all of you have. Did God cause that or permit it? He caused it. He caused it. He caused it. How do we know? You Bible students, how do you know? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Okay. God gave. Okay, so God gave Jesus. Started a roll of events. Okay. I'm going to read to you 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hallelujah. God didn't permit you. God caused you to be born again. Okay, what about the sins you committed this last week? Did God cause you to commit those sins or did he permit you to commit those sins? He permitted you. You see, everything is either permitted or caused. Everything. And because God knew what you would do ahead of time and he allowed you to do it, that thing is now certain to take place. And so it's part of God's foreordained purposes. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So it's all foreordained. But we have to keep in mind that God's willing for things to take place doesn't mean that that destroys the free choice of his creatures. Okay. No one put a gun to Judas's head and said, you have to betray Jesus Christ. 
No one made Judas do that against his will. Judas wanted to betray Christ because he wanted the 30 pieces of silver. He was greedy and covetous. He wanted the money. And he did it because he wanted to do it. Even Pilate, when he gave the assent to have Jesus scourged and crucified, he made that decision of his own free choice. Nobody was forcing Pilate to make the decision. He made the decision. According to him, at that moment, that was, to, in, in his thinking, that was the best choice for him to make at that point. So God allowed Satan to tempt Judas with money. Judas freely decided to betray the Son of God. If God forced Judas to betray Jesus, how could God justly punish Jesus, Judas? But yet we know that Judas will be punished in hell because Jesus said that he was the son of perdition. It means a son of damnation. So Judas will be punished. But if God forced Judas to do something that he didn't want to do, then how could that be a just punishment? So, no, it doesn't destroy the free choices of God's creatures. We still make choices. But yet everything has been foreordained in God's purposes. What about the cross of Jesus Christ? Did God cause it? Did God permit it? He caused it. Okay, this is a hard one. <laughs> there are texts, like there's, some, there's a text in Revelation that says that he is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It was part of his eternal plan and purpose to send his son to die. But if we say God caused it, are we also saying that God caused those Roman soldiers to drive the nails through his hands? Are we saying that God caused the religious leaders to make that decision so that they're not accountable for their actions? And I don't think we can say that. So this is one where you see God's definite, strong and mighty hand, but you also see that these people were doing what they, do, they were doing because they wanted to. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And we've read that in Mark, haven't we? They're trying to find a way to, to kill him. They didn't want him around anymore. So yeah, God permitted them to do it, but that permission of what to kill the son of God was part of his foreordained plan from eternity. So he, he just let them be free to do what they already wanted to do. Exactly. Because he knew that was going to fit into his, his plan from all eternity. But doesn't John three sixteen imply that that God, that God planned for Jesus to die on the cross? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's part of his foreordained plan. Okay. Yeah. It, these are mind benders. <laughs> <laughs> Here, this might help you. I, I ran into this quote about 25 years ago. It's a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards lived in the 1700s. He was part of the first great awakening in the New England colonies. He was a very... He was a brilliant uh, theologian and philosopher and an author. And this is a statement that he wrote that, that has helped me. Whether God has decreed all things that ever come to pass or not, all that own the being of a God own that he knows all things beforehand. Now, it is self-evident that if he knows all things beforehand, he either is willing they should be or he is not willing they should be. But to will that they should be is to decree them. It's not, not hitting home to anybody, is it? It's, it's, it's like his sovereign will or his sovereignty. Yes. 
So all Jonathan Edwards is saying is that God knows everything that's going to pass before it comes to pass. And either he's willing, he says, okay, I'm going to let that unfold the way that I see it. It's going to unfold. I'm not going to stop it. But if he does let it unfold, then he, that's the it comes with the force of a decree. God decrees that those things will take place. They, they can't not take place from that moment when God says, yes, this is going to take place. I'm going to allow Judas to betray the son of God. I'm going to allow Pilate to scourge and crucify him. I'm going to allow Hitler to become the, the ruler of Germany and do atrocities. All of that, everything that's ever happened was in the mind of God and God allowed that to be played out. So God is free and man is free, but God is freer than man. That's the thing. God's freedom is not limited by man's freedom. Man's freedom is limited by God's freedom. Okay, let me put it like this. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. They're saying in the Westminster Confession, everything that we've been saying, God is not forcing people to do things against their will. He's not, violence is not offered to the will of the creatures and God is not the author of sin. We sin because we want to. God isn't making a sin. But he has freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, think about this question. This might help. What causes a person to change their plans? Like I might make a plan that I'm going to go to the Bahamas in July. And I'm going to take my wife. We're going to have a nice <laughs> vacation in the Bahamas for a week. But I don't know that when it comes to June 30th, I have no money for my plane ticket. So if I don't have the resources to go on this vacation that I planned, then my plans can be thwarted. Or something else could stop me from fulfilling that trip, those plans. What if I didn't have the foresight? Maybe a hurricane is going to land two days before my trip to the Bahamas, and there, it's going to be in shambles, and so I can't go. I, didn't, I couldn't see into the future, so I didn't know that hurricane was coming. So I either lacked the resources or I lacked the foresight. And because of those things, I have to adjust my plans. But think about it this way. God has no lack of resources. Mm -hmm. And God has no lack of foresight. Mm -hmm. So if God knows all things and God can do all things, there's never any reason for him to adjust his plans. Mm -hmm. Well done. Charles Spurgeon once said it like this. God is a mastermind. He arranged everything long before he did it. And once having settled it, he never alters it. Why should God alter his plans? He's almighty and can perform his pleasure. He is all wise and therefore can't have planned wrongly. But that brings us, of course, you're probably thinking about some texts right now where it seems to indicate God changed his mind in the Bible. So we want to talk about those texts. One of them is from Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah where God told him to go through the land of Nineveh? Well, it's actually Jonah 3, verses 4 and 10. 
Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then verse 10 says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So we look at that and we say, looks like God changed his plan. His first plan was to destroy Nineveh. He didn't do it. He changed his mind and he relented. So if we just take this at face value and come up with that conclusion, what we'd have to also conclude is that God is not omniscient. It would mean that once God learned that the Ninevites had repented and he got that new information that he didn't have before, then he adjusted his plan according to that new information. So either we have to believe God is omniscient or we don't. If you believe God is omniscient and God is omnipotent, then there's no way that God has to adjust his plans later. See, that view reduces God to the level of a finite creature like you and me. We don't know the future. We don't know all things. And so, yes, we adjust our plans all the time. Why do you think God commanded Jonah to warn the Ninevites of the impending judgment? Why did God warn them? I think it was because he desired them to repent. And he knew that he would have mercy on them if they did. Of course, God knew that they would repent. And by sending Jonah to declare that threatening judgment, that was the means God used to bring about their repentance and it accomplished God's end that he knew was going to happen all along. God wasn't surprised by their repentance. He wasn't shocked. Oh, wow, I didn't think that was going to happen. Oh, God, God knew the end from the beginning, just like he says in Isaiah 46. And God knew that when they repented, he would show mercy. Okay, there's another example in Exodus 32. This is, this is the example that happens in the, the ministry of Moses after the people of Israel have uh, created a golden calf and danced around it and worshipped it. And God is so furious, he's about to destroy the entire nation. At least he's threatening to do so. Let's just read the passage first. It's Exodus 32, starting in verse 9. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, O oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out? from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, there it does say the Lord changed his mind. But if we take that for what it seems to say, we would have to conclude that Moses was a, a lot more wise than God was. Because Moses comes up with the plan. Poor God doesn't seem to have the foresight to understand that this isn't a good plan, that he has to listen to Moses who corrects him 
and says, no, 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 don't do that. If you do that, then the Egyptians are going to think bad about you. You better come up with another plan, God. And go, oh, yeah, Moses, I didn't think about that. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous when you think about it, right? It's, it's really ridiculous. So what's going on then? What's really going on? God is using Moses to accomplish his will. Exactly. Notice what happens here in verse, let's see, verse 10. Why does God say to Moses, now then let me alone, that I, my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Let me alone, Moses. Why would God even say that? He doesn't need to. He could just do it. Isn't he stirring Moses up to intercede for the people of Israel? It's God's way of bringing Moses to intercede for them so that God won't destroy them. You see, God does have a purpose, but he also has means. And these means are just as vital as the end goal. And these means bring about the end goal. And one of the means was Moses' intercession on behalf of the people. So I believe, yes, God knew that he was going to have mercy upon the nation of Israel, but he stirs up Moses to intercede. And through that intercession, God goes ahead and come, follows a different course of action than he originally had talked about doing. So from the human perspective, it looked like God changed his mind. From the divine perspective, nothing at all had changed. It depends whether you're looking from the helicopter view, you know, the heavenly view down, you see it one way, or if you're the human view looking up, you see it a different way. The other one, that is the third one, is Genesis chapter 6, where we have the account of the flood. <clears throat> now, Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7, says that when God saw the wickedness of man, he was sorry that he had made him and grieved in his heart and decided to blot him out from the face of the land. So does that mean that God changed his mind? Does it mean that God didn't foresee how sinful man would become? Mm -hmm. Nowhere in Genesis 6 does it say anything about God changing his purposes or his plans. But what it does say, it, it talks about God's emotions of sorrow and grief. It helps us to understand how God felt about the sinful actions of man. And I think that's the point of Genesis 6. Um, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart because God is a person. He has personal emotions like sorrow and grief. And so Genesis 6 is not telling us that God didn't anticipate this. It's just telling us how God felt when, the, when it did take place. Just like we would be grieved if our children did something like they had done. We would be sorry and we would be grieved. So how do I know this so confidently? It's because we have other texts like 1 Samuel 15, 29. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God is not a man that he should change his mind. He won't do it. He won't change his mind. He doesn't need to, and it's never necessary for him to do so. So what we have sometimes in scripture are anthropomorphisms. And let me explain that term. Anthro means man. Morphisms means form, the form of a man. 
What this means is that an anthropomorphism is to attribute human behavior to God. People change their minds. And so for us, when we read the Bible to understand what's going on, sometimes the Bible uses anthropomorphisms. They use the language of human activity attributed to God, but it can't actually be said to have been done exactly the way that the Bible describes it. Nothing catches God by surprise or catches him off guard. He's the infinite, all-knowing one. So, does this have any practical relevance for you and me? The fact that God is immutable. Let's try to think about that for these concluding minutes together. Does it make any difference whether God is immutable or not? Well, God's immutability means that we can know he will never change in his essential being ever. And that's important. If God could change in the future, we would never know whether we could really trust him. What if God changed from being a holy, righteous, and good God into a cruel and evil God? And of course, because he's omnipotent, there's nothing we can do about it. How would you trust a God like that? How could you commit your life unreservedly to a God you never know if he's going to be the same in his essential being or not? Is he going to remain with the same attributes or is he going to change those attributes? You can never commit your life to him. You can never trust him. It would be a terrifying prospect. So that's, that's one of the practical implications of the immutability of God is you can trust God. You can love God. You can commit your life to God because he will always remain the same. There's comfort. There is no comfort in a vacillating God. There is great comfort in a, in a rock-like, immutable God. Secondly, God's immutability instructs us not to trust a man. Eventually, every person will fail you, one way or another. Because we're fallen, we're imperfect, we're weak. God will never fail you. Health will fail you. Riches will fail you. Friends will fail you. God won't fail you. Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, <clears throat> the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. So don't put your ultimate hope in your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or your best friend because they're, they can't sustain that kind of, of responsibility. But God can. Thirdly, God's immutability provides security for Christians. What do I mean? If God ever purposed to save me, I am secure forever. If God ever purposed to love me, he will love me forever. If he ever purposed to forgive me, he's going to be, or I will be forgiven forever. If he ever saved me, I am saved forever. My salvation is not dependent on my performance or my works. If it were, I'd never have any confidence or never have any assurance of my salvation. But rather, my salvation is grounded in God's eternal purpose. 
which doesn't change, cannot be altered, cannot fail, cannot be thwarted. So put your trust and your hope not in yourself, but in God and God's work on your behalf. <clears throat> the last practical implication is not for Christians, but to non-Christians. And it's this, God's immutability is terrifying to the wicked because it means God will not change. If you are unsaved and you show up at the judgment, God isn't going to say, oh, I guess I'll just let you slide in. He's not going to change his threatenings. If he said, he who disbelieves shall be damned, he will not change his mind and exonerate you and allow you into heaven. He's not going to say, oh, just everybody come on in. I've changed my mind. God doesn't change. And what he says in his word 2,000 years ago, he's going to say again on judgment day. It's not going to change. The one who said, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or the one who said, the Lord Jesus will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. God means what he says. And so the fact that God is immutable ought to terrify the wicked because God isn't going to change for them. They're going to have to change. God's not. So this is a message that we need to tell our non-Christian friends. You must repent. You must change. And of course, that only happens through work of God, the work of the Spirit of God to change the heart and the soul. But don't make the mistake of thinking that God wasn't really serious when he told you that the Broadway leads to destruction or that the wages of sin is death, or the soul that sins shall surely die. Those are words of sobering truth that will never change, and God, God will not reverse those. So there are some practical application. Let's pray, and then we can discuss this further. <clears throat> Lord, we behold you as the great immutable God. You do not change, therefore, not only the sins of Jacob are not consumed, but neither are we. Lord, you easily could have consumed us because of our sins. There's many failings, Lord, and imperfections and sins that we've committed, but your grace, having been given to us, continues to abide with us. We thank you, Lord, that once you have begun that good work in us, it will be perfected all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. It gives us strong hope and assurance because of the unchangeableness of your purpose. Lord, we thank you that you are a rock that cannot be moved. Everything else in this universe can, but Lord, you can't. We can trust you forever. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.